Pastor Kevin Davis, Woodland Friends Church here. Uh, I'm preaching through an entire book today, and I have three separate readers in the service this morning, but I didn't want to pause our service every five seconds to, you know, give them a mic, so I'm just going to read it for us, <clears throat> and then we'll jump right into the recording of my sermon. The, te <clears throat> the text is Second Samuel chapter 2. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? The Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? He said, To Hebron. So David went up there, along with his two wives, the Hinoim of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David brought up the men who were with him, every one of his household, and they settled in the towns of Hebron. Then the people of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David it was the people of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the people of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I too will reward you because you have done this thing. Therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner, son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbael, son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. He made him king over Gilead, the Asherites, Jezreel, Ephraim, Benjamin, and over all Israel. Ishbael, Saul's son, was forty years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. The time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Abner son of Ner and the servants of Ishbael son of Saul went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. Joab son of Zeriah and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. One group sat on one side of the pool, while the other sat on the other side of the pool. Abner said to Joab, Let the young men come forward and have a contest before us. Joab said, Let them come forward. So they came forward and were counted as they passed by, twelve for Benjamin and Ishbael son of Saul and twelve of the servants of David. Each grasped his opponent by the head, and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore that place was called Helkath Hazarim. Footnote. <clears throat> that is the field of sword edges. Which is at Gibeon. The battle was very fierce. The battle was very fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten by the servants of David. The three sons of Zeriah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Azahel. Now Azahel was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle. Azahel pursued Abner, turning neither to the right nor to the left as he followed him. Then Abner looked back and said, Is it you, Azahel? He answered, Yes, it is. Abner said to him, Turn to your right or to your left and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Azahel would not turn away from following him. Abner said again to Azahel, Turn away from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I show my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn away. So Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear, so that the spear came out at his back. He fell there and died where he lay. And all those who came to the place where Azahel had fallen and died stood still. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. As the sun was going down, they came to the hill country of Amah, which lies before Gaia on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. 
The Benjamites, the Benjaminites rallied around Abner and formed a single band. They took their stand on the top of a hill. Then Abner called to Joab, Is the sword to keep devouring forever? Do you not know that the end will be better? How long will it be before you order your people to turn from the pursuit of their kinsmen? Joab said, As God lives, if you had not spoken, the people would have continued to pursue their kinsmen, not stopping until the morning. Joab sounded the trumpet, and all the people stopped. They no longer pursued Israel, or engaged in battle any further. Abner and his men traveled all that night through the Arabah. They crossed the Jordan, and, marching the whole forenoon, they came to Mahanaim. Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner. And when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing of David's servants nineteen men besides Azahel. But the servants of David had killed of Benjamin three hundred and sixty of Abner's men. They took up Azahel and buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning, says Jesus. Watching. Jesus wasn't even crucified, resurrected, or ascended yet. We go back further and Jesus says, according to Mark, at the beginning of his ministry, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand already. Jesus says in the present tense to his accusers, but from now on the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. From now on. This is all thousands of years ago. So much so, when a follower, a martyr of Jesus, perishes, we read about Stephen saying in Acts, as he's dying from a stoning, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. There's this paradox. Christ knows He's King. His kingdom has already come. But why are His followers suffering in His kingdom? Why does one man proclaim his position at the right hand of God as he's dying? It seems as if if you're a follower of a king in his kingdom, where he is already reigning, you should win, right? You should be okay. Christ, who dies for sin and defeats sin, as we state he does at the cross, resurrects, rules, and reigns, but still amid sin. He's reigning amid sin. And that's the theme I felt the Holy Spirit draw us to as we pick up, after a little over a year, our series through the books of Samuel, starting in Second Samuel. We're going to see today, like Jesus, a broken assumption that is the assuming of a throne of the original King David. And it will point to Jesus, the greater King David, but the original King David 
will finally be coming into the position he's known about as his. But before we dive any further, let's pray. Father, there is this paradox as we proclaim as followers of you, you are sovereign. You are the governor of the entire universe, the supreme authority. But it breaks our heart because we have your heart to see injustice, to see suffering, to see the enemy. Many times it appears he's winning. And if you're the sovereign, why don't you do something about it? Is what we would like to say, and many times we do say. Show us today what it means. Give us insight into your ways of reigning as to why you're reigning amid sin. We thank you for your word. We ask that you would make it come alive to us. Would you warm up cold hearts? Would you tear down defenses? Would we give ourselves completely to you today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. David, though privately anointed by Samuel as the next king, had been running from Saul who wants his throne. Saul already has his throne, but he wants the next king's throne too. Saul was plainly told he was rejected as king and repentance and surrender to God were two ideas that apparently never entered into his brain. He rejected God. And in fact, he pursued David, murdering people in the process, Israel suffering for his crazed pursuit. Though God had spared David from Saul's attacks, there were two opportunities where David's supporters wished that David would take advantage of those opportunities and slay Saul. One of those eager beaver soldiers of David shows up today. But David resisted. However, and I argued that this doesn't wasn't necessarily the Lord's will, but we read in 1 Samuel 27, 1 tells us just who was in counsel with David when he makes this decision. Then David said to himself, now, I don't know why it sounds like that, now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than to escape into the land of the Philistines. Saul then will despair of searching for me anymore in all the territory of Israel, and I will escape from his hand. It's just David and himself talking. I have those conversations too. And the heart, the the actual wording there is David said to his heart, and the heart is deceitful above all things. Furthermore, the author puts this in right after the, the, the second opportunity that David had with Saul. As in, here's an opportunity to kill him, David. David says, the one thing I can draw from this is that Saul's going to kill me. <laughs> it's like the author wants us to see the grace and protection and then contrasted with, with David's reasoning. And so he goes to Israel's enemy. He sells himself to a king, Achish. He sets up, he and his soldiers at a city called Ziklag, and then he starts raiding southern Israelite cities to sweep out some of Israel's enemies. And so we might be tempted to say, oh, see, look, he's doing good things. He's he's taking out Israel's enemies. Maybe God wanted him to do this. But then 1 Samuel ends with David and his men coming this close to going to war with Israel. With Achish. It's just the other Philistine lords are smarter than Achish. And they say, David, go home. 
you're not going to be behind us as, as we go towards you, your, your kinsmen in Israel. You're not fighting in this war. So David and his men return home, and what do they find? Ziklag, their city, has been raided and raised by the people he's been pillaging and raiding in Israel. And though the author told us right away that the families were safe, they were just taken captive, David and his men didn't know that. Somebody should make a Western movie about this. The people are tempted to commit mutiny. And finally, David prays. Remember our old friend John Candle? He used to say, prayer, it's come to that. Ironically, showing it's what we should always be doing. And it's the first mention of David seeking the Lord's will in a long time. And the Lord, showing his long suffering, his mercy, tells David that you can pursue the men and in fact you're going to recover everything and everyone and then some. Some of the spoils he sends to those Israelite cities, one of which is Hebron, which shows up in our text today. But as David is enjoying victory over the raiders who destroyed the city of Ziklag, the Philistines are enjoying victory over Israel. Saul and his three sons, one of them Jonathan, David's close friend, all dying on the battlefield. The same war that David and his men were were close to going out into himself. And that's where we're at. That's where we pick up the story in 2 Samuel that has already been read to us. There's three broad movements I want to look at this morning in this text. Broken succession, brewing civil war, and then lastly, bitter reflection. So now you know I did go to college. They all start with B's. That's what you learn in college. Broken succession, brewing civil war, and bitter reflection. First in verses 1 through 11, we have broken succession, beginning with verse 1. We read, Then it came about afterwards that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to one of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. So David said, Where shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. It just came into my mind as I was reading this. Many of you maybe remember Dallas Willard. I think he had a book called Discerning the Will of God or something. And he brings up, especially in First and Second Samuel, it's amazing how God and David have these just... Conversations like this. And he was just trying to figure out what that looked like. That that little tidbit was for free, sorry. But, notice the beginning. Then it came about. What was the then after? It was after David and Israel had had this lamentation for Saul and Jonathan. And as you read Second Samuel 1, David remembers Saul especially very graciously. Very fondly, which says quite a bit concerning how Saul had mistreated David. And so after this, after the Philistines had wiped out northern Israel, after Israel had lost their king as morbid, sinful, and fallen as he once, as he was, now David wants to know from God who, through Samuel, had anointed him as Israel's next king. Where do I go? What do I do? And God sends him to Hebron. So David went up there, his two wives also, Ahanoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite, and David brought up his men who were with him, each with his household, and they lived in the cities of Hebron. Then the men of Judah came and there anointed David king 
over the house of Judah. Now, one verse, but it's a monumental moment. First of all, Jerusalem is the hand of a group of people called the Jebusites. And honestly, in comparison to Hebron, Jerusalem's not that big of a deal at this point. David, of course, will make it a big deal, but there are strategic reasons that he wants Hebron. Hebron is actually the highest point in Israel. In fact, Joshua 10.3 tells us that it was the Canaanite royal city. So the Canaanites before them, it was their capital. And they told David, saying, It was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul. And David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed of the Lord, because you have shown this kindness to Saul your Lord, and have buried him. And now may the Lord show loving kindness and truth to you, and I also will show this goodness to you, because you have done this thing. Now therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul, your Lord, is dead. And also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. So after Saul was slaughtered in battle, we were told that men from Jabesh Gilead snuck his body out and gave him a proper king's burial. It is likely because one of Saul's first acts as king was to thwart off another enemy attack, That was happening in Jabesh Gilead. We see that in 1 Samuel 11. And no matter how Saul is seen throughout Israel, Jabesh Gilead will likely not forget Saul's loyalty to them. Which is what David is getting at here. He was was crowned king in Judah, which is one tribe in southern Israel. But he's talking to a northern locale saying, Hey, I commend you for your loyalty. I was never Saul's enemy as far as I was concerned. Sure, he tried to kill me all the time, but I never sought to kill him for myself. And you paid him honor and a burial that I 100% support, but he's dead now. And Israel needs to unite. Will you pay me that honor? Judah already is. That's the idea here. And if David were to get their loyalty from the folks who dared to go behind enemy lines to retrieve Saul, if those people now showed their loyalty to David then most of Saul's loyalist subjects would probably follow suit. So it's kind of a political kindness move here. Very wise. We don't know if Jabesh Gilead pledges their loyalty right away, though, because the next thing we do here is someone else is trying to take advantage of the precarious state that Israel is in. And they're going to set up a puppet kingdom through Saul's other son. We pick up in verse 8. But Abner, son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. Now, Abner was present for one of these opportunities that David had to kill Saul. He was Saul's personal bodyguard. 1 Samuel 14.50 also tells us that Abner is Saul's uncle, which makes him great uncle to Ishbosheth. In any case, in this Second opportunity where David had a chance to kill Saul. David and one of his men sneak into the camp. One of his men is going to show up today, this man. Where all of Saul's men was sleeping, because the Lord had put a sleep on them. And instead of spearing the sleeping Saul, David just takes the spear, goes to a safe location, and then he taunts him later. Hey Saul, wake up! Is this your spear? I had an opportunity to kill you, but I spared your life. And then he taunts Abner too. He says, what a great bodyguard you are. (laughs) So this Abner is loyal to Saul. He takes Saul's 
son, who was apparently either too young or too timid, or maybe he did serve in the war, but he didn't die like his brothers. And Abner brings him to Mahanaim, which to put it in contemporary terms, imagine if the U.S. is devastated by war, the White House is empty, so a general takes a puppet president and he installs him in a temporary capital in Idaho. Or Colorado. You get the idea. It's it's not near a powerhouse center. It's defendable. In other words, it's an unstable kingdom. Verse 9, And he, Abner, made him Ishbosheth, Saul's son, king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, and over Benjamin, even over all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he became king over Israel, and he was king for two years. Doesn't that phrase sound familiar if you ever read the Bible? If you ever read the, the fascinating page-turning epics of First and Second Kings, there are these summaries everywhere. This king was 30 years old when he became king, and he was king four and a half years. First uh, and Second King, or excuse me, First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings are known in some old Bibles as First, Second, Third, and Fourth Kings as in they may have been the same author or compilers. My point is, is though, I don't know about you when I was young, but I didn't realize there was a divided monarchy and then David. But we already have Israel and Judah. It's kind of a prelude to things, how are they going to happen after Solomon dies. The house of Judah followed David. Verse 11, And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. So this is what we have so far. A broken secession. As far back as 1 Samuel 16, when David was likely a teenager, he was anointed king by Samuel. He's been 10 years on the run from Saul. And this is the moment that he's been waiting for. Don't you love what he inherits? A defeated, fractured Israel overrun by Philistines. Yes, Saul is gone, but then Saul's son is in the way. There's a scheming general. And then on top of this, we begin to see brewing civil war. As if the broken kingdom with two named kings wasn't signs enough. But it's like the author wants us to recall that anointing of David. And I'll tell you why here in a second. But look at this in verse 12. Now Abner son of Ner went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon with the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul. I think in your outlines I gave you a wonderful little chart, hopefully so you can keep all the names and places straight. You're like, wait, what's team good and team bad? Hopefully that chart will help. So here comes Israel, Saul's son's kingdom. I would argue really Abner's kingdom. Ishbosheth is just a puppet. But the army comes down to Gibeon, and this is like a central place, likely a disputed place between the northern and southern kingdoms. And then we read about David's men, his army, and Joab, son of Zeriah, and the servants of David went out and met them by the pool of Gibeon, and they sat down, one on the one side of the pool, and the other on the other side of the pool. Then Abner said to, said to Joab, so now the enemy commanders are talking, now let the young men arise and hold a contest before us. And Joab said, let them arise. So in 1 Samuel 16, David was anointed king, but do you remember what happens in 1 Samuel 17? David and Goliath. And there, Israel is a united kingdom met against the Philistines at a ravine, and Goliath had called out Israel for a contest. 
one-on-one. Let's spare a lot of bloodshed. Let's just do one-on-one. To which David rose to the challenge. But here, after David's been anointed king at Hebron, we see another contest, only it's Israel against Israel. Brother against brother. And so, the word contest, scholars and commentators do wonder, is like, is this, is this just jousting gone bad? <laughs> like, the medieval sport sometimes that crossed the line? Or is this all out David and Goliath? These two mar- parties do mean to fight, but instead of bloodshed of their entire armies, let's just dial it back and do 12 on 12. Could be that. Because back in verse 12, a commentator would say, where it says the army of the north went out from Mahanaim. This is the common Hebrew phrase for the army left for war type phrase. Whatever it was, it got gory really fast. You remember this. So they arose and went out by count, twelve for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, the northern kingdom, Israel, and twelve of the servants of David, Judah, the southern kingdom. And each one of them seized his, opportun- seized his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side. So they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called Helkath Hazarim, or the field of swords, which is in Gibeon. And you say, that seems so stupid, that can't happen. They all seized each other's heads and thrust each other at the same time. But there are actually ancient drawings and etches of armies doing this in the ancient Near East. And it reminds me of another form of stupid warfare. Let's all line up on a field, get real close to each other, point our guns at each other, and shoot. (laughs) Right? So this is how they did it in that day. They didn't have guns yet, I guess. And if it was a contest that sought to save more bloodshed, it didn't work. (laughs) Because it seems the rest of the armies are then drawn in. Like, what did they expect? You really killed our fellow soldiers? (laughs) Verse 17 says, In that day the battle was very severe, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. In other words, Judah. David, the southern kingdom, Judah, is winning. Only now there is one episode as the author then hones in on some of the actions of David's men, now the three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Azahel. So again, that second opportunity to kill Saul that David had, that one guy who was urging him, hey, they're all asleep. Here's the spear. You know the one that Saul tried to kill you with several times? Put that in him. That guy is Abishai. He's very antsy. And it's actually David's nephew. All three of them are. Zeruiah is David's sister. So First Chronicles 2, 13 and 16 tell us that. And we're going to see that Abishai isn't the only antsy one. It continues, And Azahel was swift-footed as one of the gazelles, which is in the field. And Azahel pursued Abner. So again, this is the general of army. <clears throat> and I would argue Ishbosheth's puppet master. And he did not turn to the right or to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is that you, Azahel? And he answered, It is I. So Abner said to him, Turn to your right or to your left and take hold of one of the young men for yourself and take it for yourself his spoil. In battle, we actually saw this in Second Samuel 1. It's common to take the enemy's gear and take it to your leader as a way of saying, I slayed him for you. Now, where's my reward? 
And so Abner is saying, you're not going to get my gear. <laughs> Go get someone else's, someone you can actually defeat. But Azahel was not willing to turn aside from following him in verse 22. And Abner repeated again to Azahel, turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift my face up to your brother Joab? So we're all on the same page here. One of David's men, his nephew, very antsy, impetuous soldier, is pursuing Abner. Maybe Abner pegged him as the real threat from Israel. Maybe he just he's the commander on the battlefield, and for whatever reason, Abner thinks he's going to get a lead on him. He's going to win this duel, so he's pursuing him. Maybe he expects to be rewarded or honored by David if he kills him. Meanwhile, Abner, likely older, is trying to dissuade him. This is going to end badly. <laughs> Let's not do this. Then, Joab, your older brother, will hate me all the more. Why don't you pick off one of the privates? <laughs> it could also be, as we see uh, Abner later talk to Joab, Abner doesn't want this high-profile matchup. He doesn't want this to continue to be civil war. <clears throat> He likely wants Ishbosheth to be ruler of all Israel. And this isn't going to help if he's starting to kill some of David's closest men. But Azahel's not hearing. However, he, Azahel, team David, refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the belly with the butt end of the spear so that the spear came out his back. There is evidence that spears, even the butt end, would have a metal, somewhat sharp casing so you could stick it in the ground. And he, Azahel, um, fell there and died on the spot. And it came about that all who came to the place where Azahel had fallen and died stood still. Far into the book of Second Samuel, chapter 3, it recounts David's mighty men. Azahel is named. So Purple Heart, maybe, military honors. <laughs> maybe he did some feats before this, or maybe this is kind of a post Honor, well, you tried to pursue the enemy commander. <clears throat> Joab, Azahel's older brother, is the commander of Judah's army, and now his brother is dead. If it was just to be a contest, this was a tense one. To give Abner credit, he didn't want to do it. He did tell Azahel to break off before engaging him, and likely this was out of self-defense. <laughs> But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. It's on. They want revenge. And spoiler alert, they're gonna, it's not gonna be today, but they're eventually gonna have revenge. And when the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Ammah, which is in front of Gaia, by the way of the wilderness of Gibeon. And the sons of Benjamin, again, northern tribe, Saul's sons team, team Israel, team Ishbosheth. And the sons of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner and became one band and they stood on top of a certain hill. Then Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the end? How long will you refrain from telling the people to turn back from following their brothers? Abner's choosing his words very particular. Notice it's their brothers. This is civil war. How long will it be civil war is what Abner is saying. Abner didn't want to kill Azahel. And in fact, we're going to see Abner defect in the next chapter. He doesn't want civil war, and he doesn't want retribution from Azahel's family. So finally, this gory, what started out as a contest, comes to an end. 
And Joab, Team David, Team Judah says, As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the people would have gone away in the morning, each from following his brother. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the people halted and pursued Israel no longer, nor did they continue to fight any more. Abner, Team Israel, and his men then went through the Arabah, or the plain, all that night. So they crossed the Jordan, walked all morning, and came to Mahanaim, that's the capital, then Joab returned from following Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, 19 of David's servants, besides Azahel, were missing. So 20 losses for David and Judah. But the servants of David had struck down many of Benjamin and Abner's men, so that 360 men died. Ishbosheth and Israel suffered greatly in this battle. They took up Azahel and buried him in his father's tomb, which was in Bethlehem. Then Joab and his men went all night until the day dawned in Hebron. Bethlehem to Hebron was 23 miles, so even after they've been chasing all over this mountainside, let's march another 23 miles. What's the point? Kevin, what are you going to do with this? <laughs> Did we just keep reading? Was this just an interesting itinerary? Here's what I see. A broken assumption. David is supposed to be assuming the throne. He's been on this path for years. He was anointed as a teenager. He's been chased by Saul. He's always been nice to Saul. He never sought to kill him when he could, when he had opportunity. And now that Saul has died, and now that Israel is open for a new leader, he's facing this. More Saul followers. Scheming commanders. Civil war. Two kingdoms. But he was promised. Yahweh through Samuel told him. And it reminds us of the greater King David who saw Satan fall like lightning. Who preached that the time was at hand in his day. Who now sits at the right hand of God to receive suffering followers. A kingdom that receives devout followers in the form of suffering martyrs. It shows us that both King David and the greater King David, they reign amid sin. And we know this isn't the end of, of David. This isn't the end for him, like I alluded to. Even Abner himself will eventually defect to David's side. But even that whole situation is going to be mired in sin. But what we should be encouraged by is that God, Christ, you know He doesn't need a clean world to reign in? There's one comedian who said you don't clean yourself up to take a bath. He starts with where we're at. He starts in a broken world. He redeems a fallen world. He works with broken people. He shows up to a darkened, sinful Jewish establishment. He inaugurates the kingdom amid fishermen and the like. He dines with prostitutes and sinners. He offends the religious leaders of his day. He suffers he gives himself to the leaders who would murder him. And with that, he inaugurates his kingdom. Squeaky clean, right? With that, he saves the world. He's able to rise and save those who believe in him from the very sin that Jesus was close next to and suffered by. I wonder if sometimes you wonder. I wonder if you think, where is God in all this? Because it seems like those people who want 
their own king, and these people over here are scheming too, and those foreign powers look mighty scary, and the people you thought were righteous and good, turns out they aren't. And it's just a mess, a broken mess, and you and I are supposed to believe that Jesus is is, is reigning in all this? He is. He is. Reminds me of this same kingdom we're talking about. Another time when the kingdom of Israel was split in two, north and south. Another time when there was brokenness on a mass level and a prophet shows up and he dares ask God what I'm thinking. He audaciously brings God to account and he says, How long, O Lord, will I call for help and thou wilt not hear? I cry out to thee violence, yet thou dost not save. And why dost thou make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists. Contention arises. Therefore the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore justice comes out perverted. Great kingdom, God, is what he's saying. You hear the angst in that? That's Habakkuk and and he's saying God doesn't hear him. Sin is happening. Wrongdoing left and right. It's like CNN and Fox News sounding out their usual fear-mongering tactics because some bad news is happening in the world. And where are you, God? Where are you? What does God say? Look among the nations. Observe. Be astonished. Wonder. Because I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. It's like God has a pulse on the human heart because some of you will hear this. Yeah, that's... That's about what that sounded like. God has the nerve to say this because it's true. And it means that even in a broken world, a world where He has installed His King, but sin still persists, the King is still reigning. The King will still be victorious, and He can use whatever we give Him, even if it's sin. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we look at the, I guess the culmination, something that the author of First and Second Samuel has been building to for a long time. We saw a small little verse where David was crowned king. And then it's like the author said, okay, back to all the nasty action. And we wonder, is this it? This is what David's been waiting for? This is all there is? More scheming, more warring, people who don't like David, people who want to kill David's followers? If there's anything your word tells us, perhaps it's what Isaiah says, your thinking and your ways are not our thinking and our ways. If there's anything your gospel tells us, whenever God becomes flesh, certainly doesn't act like it, at least not the way we would act like it if we were God and controlled everyone and controlled everything. No, you show us your way as love and service, peace. And I say this all the time, but 2,000 years Removed, what kingdom is still standing? The kingdom of Jesus. Rome has long since fallen. The Jewish establishment got burnt to the ground pretty quickly after you died and resurrected and ascended. But your kingdom remains and persists through all other kingdoms and nations. You have the ability to reign amid sin. And so help us to have that perspective that even when things look dark and we have the heart of Habakkuk, seeing all the things happening around us and wondering, where are you in all this? Did you lose? Were you 
following no one, but your heart says, look, can be astounded. I am at work. Even if you don't believe it, it doesn't bother you any. You're still at work. Thank you for that and help us to trust in that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.